Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwartzstraber. On today's show, cybersecurity and myths about cybersecurity. Here to uh, bust some common myths about cybersecurity is Taylor Barkley, Assistant Director of Outreach for Tech Policy at the Mercatus Center. Taylor, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Evan. It's good to be here. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. Uh, well, uh, you're actually here in person with me, so you're yeah, not I calling, but I, I like the turn of phrase. Um, so before we start, I would just like to point out that I thought today that I was completing the entire Mercatus tech policy team, that all of your colleagues, Caleb, Adam, uh, blanking, uh, Brent Eli. and Eli, all right, had right. all come on the show to talk about tech policy. And I thought, okay, if I get Taylor, I get the whole tech policy center at Mercatus. And then you tell me you have someone working remotely in Florida that I didn't know about that. We do, but wait, there's more. <laughs> uh, Andrea Castillo is in Florida and she's our uh, program manager. She kind of herds the cats and makes sure the papers come out on time and uh, kind of has the grand picture of what we're doing. She's also a cybersecurity policy expert right. and uh, privacy as well. And well, uh, uh, when, when I finally have Andrea on the show, then I can claim that I've had the entire Mercatus team. But today, I'll have to settle for you. So thank you for joining, Taylor. It is good <laughs> to be here. Thanks, So Evan. the reason this is kind of a hot issue right now is because four senators recently introduced a bill that would require a study of vulnerabilities in the power grid. And that's important because a lot of times when you hear about cybersecurity fear and why people are worried about cybersecurity, it's not so much about the Sony hack or the IRS, or there's a lot of hacks that kind of jeopardize consumer data and make identity theft easier. But the real concern that keeps like the NSA awake at night, that keeps the army awake at night is power grid or the internet getting completely shut down. Things that could be really catastrophic. And to that end, four senators recently introduced a bill that would require a study of vulnerabilities in the power grid with a focus on cybersecurity. And the end goal of this, believe it or not, would be to replace newer technology with older technology because the, ostensibly the older technology would be less vulnerable to cyber attack. So in general, this concern about the big kahuna attack, the one that really takes something down, is this a legitimate concern? I mean, a lot of famous figures, uh, I think cyber Pearl Harbor is this phrase that has floated around and it's kind of gone uh, out of style, um, mainly because experts have weighed in and said, well, it's probably not going to happen. Like certainly nothing like a Pearl Harbor with, you know, planes flying overhead, you know, thousands of people dying, millions of dollars in physical damage. Uh, we have seen a few, there are three major, uh, cyber attacks that had what we call kinetic effects. So real world physical damage. Uh, the first was the Stuxnet worm in the late two thousands, which was discovered a few years after, uh, took place. And at least the rumors say that that was a Israel U S collaborative effort to try to slow down Iran's nuclear program. Right. Exactly. Like it's unattributable, but we can guess like yeah. who was behind it. Who's and got the motive, right? It was highly targeted. It took a matter of, uh, you took a number of months to plan. It took uh, on the ground intelligence. Uh, it took, you know, money. So some high, very complex, well-resourced actor did this. And in, its whole intent was to disrupt the centrifuges that were, uh, you know, refining the uranium for Iran's supposedly nuclear weapons program. And uh, it did the trick. It destroyed so those centrifuges. It threw them out of whack just enough to disrupt the uh, uranium refinement process. Uh, in recent, in 2015, there were two other attacks that had kinetic effects. One uh, that was made known months later in Germany, uh, German steel, uh, I guess, refinement plant. Uh, another very 
complex attack. Uh, the details are very limited. I think the German government or parties of interest are holding the details really close to the chest. So not a lot is known, but it is known that uh, one of the you know, major pieces of equipment in the plant, they couldn't shut it off. So it reached dangerous heat levels and caused damage to it. Um, and then the third, uh, was, of course, in Ukraine, an actual power grid attack. You know, this took down, took out power for six hours. So it wasn't, you know, as big you know, Pearl Harbor event, you know, about, uh, I think it was a couple hundred thousand people were without power for six hours. And, uh, one of the researchers, uh, who looked in this, at, at this attack called it a brilliant move. You know, it took months of preparation. It was, there were multiple moving pieces. I think when the attack actually happened, it was, I think the, one of the station monitors was like looking at his computer and just saw his mouse cursor moving, you know, across the screen and he <laughs> oh, couldn't, someone he couldn't took control over my computer. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And, uh, at the same time they were flooding the call center with telephone calls. So customers couldn't call in and report the power out. So, and those were only like two of the moving pieces. But all that planning for six, for hour six power hours, hours you got I mean, they're probably listeners thinking six hours of a power outage, whatever. Like we <laughs> deal with that anyway, yeah, without like cyber a, attacks. That's our normal weekend. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so, you know, that, that's a very real world occurrence. And, uh, you know, many of these power stations in the U S have like old equipment or have bad practices. Um, so, you know, this bill aiming to study the effects, maybe it's good to look into like what critical infrastructure is up to. Uh, you know, my colleague Eli Dorado has this great chart, uh, that squirrels have caused more power outages than cyber attacks. It's like, you know, squirrels are in the teens and are even higher than that. And cyber security or cyber attacks are in the zero. But squirrels just finding equipment and attacking it for whatever reason. <laughs> they have a vendetta against equipment. More it's like them chewing through power lines, yeah. you know, falling into, you know, the transponder or whatever you call it. So the thing I find really fascinating about your work and why I really was excited to do this show is the idea that cybersecurity starts in the physical realm. And I think so many people think of cybersecurity as something that is beyond their comprehension. And I would include myself in that. You know, I don't know what goes into viruses, antivirus software, how the NSA hacks back against China, how China hacks us. And listeners could be forgiven for thinking that it's all just in the cloud. It's all numbers. It's encryption. It's computers. It's, it's code. It's things I don't understand. But your basic point is that and you brought it up already that in two of the instances that have gotten senators all up in arms, there was on the ground help. Yeah. It was an inside job. There was someone there who was doing something. So basically the idea that cybersecurity starts in the physical realm, flesh that out a bit. And what do you mean by this notion? Yeah. So I guess we're, you know, mainly in the realm of critical infrastructure, power plants, physical realm, absolutely is a component. Like if you have crappy fences around your power station, there is nothing to prevent someone waltzing through that hole in your chain link fence and shoving a thumb drive into your computer. And if you have like the one security guard on duty who's asleep and we're watching Netflix in his booth at the front gate and there's a hole in the backside, like, you know, all bets are off. You can have all the greatest bills in the world and best practices, but if there's a hole in your fence and one security guard on duty, then someone just waltzes in and plugs in a thumb drive. Like that's the best from the researchers I've talked with, like my roommate uh, has a graduate degree in cybersecurity from Johns Hopkins and talking with him about this, you know, the best 
like it's kind of an Occam's razor thing. Like the simplest solution is the best solution. So waltzing in with a thumb drive is the best way to hack into a critical infrastructure, like a power plant. Yeah. And that'll get characterized even in the press reports as a cyber attack. But I would say it's much more like vandalism almost. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, he showed up and in person, yeah, he may have installed the software, but he showed up, he vandalized equipment. Yeah. And there's this other, uh, case of, you know, bad actors taking out a power grid. They used AK-47s, sat on a hill and shot at the you know power transformers <laughs> at, a, at a substation. And Talk that, about that, a low-tech attack. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, like, those are the kind of things, simple fixes, uh, best practices, you know, physical security that has implications in the cybersecurity realm. So in terms of why there's such a push for the government to get more involved and, quote, do something about cybersecurity... Is it headline driven? Is it because of things like Sony and the IRS and the federal government's personnel management office and all these things that get blown out of proportion, arguably or maybe not, in the press, especially when healthcare is involved? It's very sensitive. Is that what's driving cybersecurity policy? Is it basically hysteria? I th- that's definitely a component. Uh, my colleague Adam Thier had a paper a few years ago on techno panics. He kind of coined the phrase. And, you know, bad news sells. We all know that, right? So, Conjuring these worst case scenarios, hypothetical or real, uh, you know, they it gets the people going. It sells newspapers, it gets on Drudge Report, it gets clicks. So and we all watch, you know, these TV shows like CSI, uh, you know, uh, 24, uh, one of the new Die Hard movies is predicated on a cyber cyber attack. And so we have these images of, uh, you know, the nerdy guy in his mom's basement hacking into a nuclear power plant in a couple minutes when the real world examples I mentioned before took months of planning, multiple parties involved, big resources and extensive knowledge of equipment. So one of the things that generated a lot of fear uh, in the driverless cars area uh, was a hack on a Jeep Cherokee. I think it was a maybe a 2014, 2015 model. So very specific controlled circumstances. These researchers knew what they were doing already. They were able to take, take control remotely and steer, uh, the Jeep. Uh, they were able to turn off the brakes, really scary implications, but we need to realize a lot of these things like Stuxnet, uh, you know, this Jeep Cherokee incident, uh, took very, uh, high level knowledge of the systems in place. Like Stuxnet was designed for a specific model of Siemens servers. Uh, so these threats are when they're blown up, we get like the one line, you know, kind of techno panic thing of, oh, Jeep Cherokee hacked, like your car is going to get hacked and you'll be driven off a cliff by, you know, the nerd in his basement or terrorists. Uh, that we, we kind of missed the component of here's the months of planning that went into this. And it was highly specific, you know, researchers who knew the systems backwards and forwards. So that's the component that's missed uh, in this kind of techno panic threat hype. And it's confusing because we've talked about some of the large scale attacks that require a lot of planning and knowledge, but there are hacks that are really easy. And those that might be the confusion that happens on the news where something like Stuxnet happens And then there's a phishing attack and the news will obscure the fact that there is a radically different level of sophistication in the two things. So the most common cyber attacks that interact with people on a daily basis might be much simpler and easier. And you could have an elementary understanding of computer science and commit one of these attacks. So having gone through what it takes to pull off a Stuxnet and something like that or power plant shutting down and how trying to alleviate a little bit of the techno panic there. Let's talk about some of the common cybersecurity issues that people might be complaining 
conflating with Stuxnet. So yeah. the one I just mentioned, phishing, that's with a PH. Um, tell us about phishing and how it's affecting so many Americans. Yeah, you bring up a good point here. So I briefly mentioned, you know, Eli Dorado, my colleague, has this article talking about we have used cybersecurity, but that means so many different things. And I think you mentioned that earlier in this segment. So phishing is basically embedding malware, harmful software in a link to send something. So like if I wanted to take over your computer, Evan, I could say, oh, look at my photos from our vacation this weekend and I'll hyperlink, you know, photos. You'll click it and open a malicious file and boom, I'm in your computer and have access to stuff. Yeah, and that happened just now before the show. It's not even a hypothetical. So thanks a lot, Taylor. <laughs> You're welcome. Now I uh, have all the nefarious access. <laughs> so like phishing, like that's a real, that's so, it's so common. It's so cheap. Uh, I remember seeing some article in Ars Technica, like you can make, you know, a couple thousand bucks a month by just sending out, you know, t- you know 10,000 emails over the world to, just blanket everything and you'll get enough people clicking on links to, you know, free money or, you know, sexy headlines, all this stuff. I just read a piece in the, I think it was like 2010, this cybersecurity researcher, uh, took screenshots of an attractive woman and posed as a 25 year old cybersecurity expert and was able to get documents and job offers and access to, uh, classified information from uh, national defense people in the Pentagon, on the Hill. And, you know, it was a completely fake person. Like this guy was a guy posing as an attractive woman with cybersecurity expertise. So there's this element that phishing, it takes advantage of just ignorance, uh, stupid stupidity that I, you know, I think 10 years ago, like I was victim of one of these. I didn't go very far. Like I caught it before it got bad, but like, uh, you know, we all make mistakes. So it's just a num- it's a numbers game. You send out enough of these nefarious links, uh, you can get someone. And then there's, so there's phishing, then there's spear phishing or what they, I've heard coined whale phishing, going for the big targets like uh, CEOs and CIOs of companies. Right. So rather than just blasting out 10,000 emails, yeah. hoping that someone's dumb enough to click on it, you have a target. Right, right. Uh, I think it was a, one of the joint chiefs recently yeah. was a victim of this uh, a few months ago. You know, if I got enough information about the person, I could tailor an email. Maybe it's coming from inside someone in the organization. Like I've taken over a low-level employee, gotten uh, an email so it looks legit. Or even if, you know, I could send an email with like a one-letter difference, just something you could easily blank over and say like, oh, here's the job numbers you requested. Uh, And they click the link and maybe it's an actual document, but somewhere embedded in the file is malware and boom, all of a sudden access to files in the company. Right. It's as simple as that. And a lot of the government hacks have actually been just phishing attacks where someone just clicked something and and it's easy to think that the government probably has outdated electronic infrastructure and it's their fault and they got to improve cybersecurity. But sometimes it's just human error. Yeah, totally. It's important to recognize that. Now, just one other attack that's fairly common, and this is the one that we generally hear about when a website gets shut down or some service goes offline. It's DDoS denial of service mm-hmm. or... Well, DDoS is distributed denial of service, and then DOS is a denial of service. Right. And how does that work? So I guess a denial of service is a one, one-to-one connection. Uh, distributed denial of service would be a botnet. Uh, earlier in the week, you had a uh, discussion about yeah. access. Yeah. That was a great uh, episode. Uh, so distributed denial of service would be a botnet. You know, multiple computers taken over by probably phishing attacks um, or other methods. 
and able to be controlled by a, a leader. Uh, so flooding a website like this is, you know, Wells Fargo has been hit by these, probably every major bank, major websites, various methods uh, and motivations uh, to basically flood and overwhelm the site. Like I'm sure you've, you know, clicked on a popular link on Reddit and it's like some mom and pop, you know, company and they have servers to handle, you know, 2000 visitors at once. But when, you know, 150,000 visitors visit, you can't even get on the website anymore. It just floods the servers. It can't send out packets fast enough. So Right. It wasn't prepared for that exactly. level of, it's not like a Google or a Facebook, which is set up to handle over a billion users. It's much more, you, you plan for what you can reasonably expect. And you don't expect that many people. <laughs> exactly. So these botnets are sometimes used for these nefarious purposes to just flood a website. And there are services out there uh, that have uh, cropped up, like Cloudflare is one of them, basically providing additional infrastructure in the case of spiking traffic. Right. Yeah, that's that's a company we're familiar with. So you can mitigate DDoS and DOS attacks, but... Uh, you can't prevent them because it's, you know, in case of a DDoS, it's a botnet of yes. thousands of computers. There's no way you can go around and prevent And not it. terribly sophisticated. Now, exactly. Given, yeah. given these problems with human error, is it possible to even have perfect cybersecurity? And if not, because nothing's perfect, is it even worth trying? Yeah, I mean, you got to try. Uh, you know, we have private information. We have money locked up in these things, uh, you know. Companies' reputations are at risk. Governments' reputations are at risk. Secret information, people's lives. So you have to you have to try. Uh, but like regular security, there's really no such thing as 100. percent You can't exist in the real world and have 100 percent security. And are there diminishing returns as you try to get to 100? So you might think that it's always worth pouring more and more money into cybersecurity just to make it better and better. But is there a certain point where you kind of just plateau? Yeah, I think so. I mean. The best cybersecurity is to not be connected to the internet. But even then, you know, I, like the example earlier, you could have someone physically get into your room and plug a thumb drive in. So even if you're not connected to a network, I mean, that's kind of the biggest return on value or return on investment is just unplugged from the internet. But then you lose all the benefits. Right. So it's, it's trade offs all the way. And you, yeah, I think you're right. You do get a certain point where if you're 98%, you know, secure, then every, you know, tenth of an increase in percentage wise is just increasingly exponentially expensive. Yes. Because then you're going after specific actors. You're trying to beat out every, uh, you know, bird in the bush. And it's just, yeah. When the senators are looking at, you know, replacing new equipment with old equipment just to avoid the internet, you've got to ask yourself if there's a trade off there. I mean, we talk about having smart infrastructure in this country. There's such a massive complaint about how outdated our infrastructure is. And because of a techno panic where you're potentially looking at downgrading infrastructure just to avoid a cyber attack. So these are serious trade offs that need to be addressed. Now, We've talked about some of the problems. We've busted some myths. It's not always the technology. Sometimes it's the individual. Sometimes it's human error. If what the government's doing now is misguided or knee-jerk or panicky, how would you approach this issue? And what do you? What sort of actionable steps would you recommend to improve cybersecurity? I think uh, you know there are a number of ways to go about it. You know, we at Mercatus Center and the tech team talk about education awareness. So. Being aware that there are multiple kinds of attacks, uh, you are responsible for cybersecurity. You know, you as the individual, uh, there is this Department of Homeland Security dropped off thumb drives in parking lots of government uh, contractors and agencies, and about sixty percent of those thumb drives were plugged in. You know, ninety percent of the ones that had a logo of the agency or contracting company were plugged in. So you are responsible. Like it's important to make people aware. Like don't plug the thumb drive in that you get 
be fine in the parking lot. I went to a cybersecurity conference and ironically, uh, some company there was handing out free thumb drives and they were going like hotcakes. <laughs> so this is a, you know, a group of professionals and they were still taking free thumb drives and plugging them into their computers likely. So educational efforts, uh, you know, the government can like FTC is good at making people aware of, uh, consumer harms out there, you know, bad actors, uh, you know, companies, universities, schools, uh, you know, let's raise awareness of the threats out there and what you can do. Like don't click links in emails unless it's, you're like, absolutely you sure. It's, it is, exactly. Right? Like you've confirmed with like Evan, Oh, you sent me the thing. Good. Okay. now I can click it. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing to think about is a culture of resiliency. Um, and cyber security insurance plays into this. And that's another solution that Andrea Castillo and Eli Dorado talk about in some of their research at the Mercatus center. Uh, Attacks are going to happen. There's no such thing as 100% cybersecurity. So we need to kind of face the fact that we're in a world where, yeah, bad things will happen. We need, we're in a world of trade-offs. We want the benefits of the internet, but then along with the benefits come potential harms and risks. So cybersecurity insurance is one of the ways to mitigate the harms. So if your company is hacked, you've had damage to reputation, uh, intellectual property, uh, you can at least have a monetary reimbursement for the damage is done. And that's just let's deal with the realities of the world. There are far more bad actors out there that we can keep up with. They have the, the leg up in most instant instances. Um, so kind of just facing the facts and you know, the internet, it's still fairly young. We're 25 years into the commercial internet and popularization of the internet. It's, everything is becoming more connected. So it's just going to continue to evolve. Uh, thing solutions are going to continue to crop up as, as well as risks. So it's an ongoing game that is not over by any means. Well, certainly not. And we'll definitely be tracking this issue more on the show. Uh, but that's it for today. My guest has been Taylor Barkley, Assistant Director of Outreach for Tech Policy at the Mercatus Center, which is a research entity uh, based at George Mason University. Taylor, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me on, Evan. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. Pitch ideas, topics, guests, uh, things you like, things you don't like. Uh, find this podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite app. Please leave us a review because we'll help others find the show. And thanks for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.